Welcome to The Commentaries, a podcast series from TAN in which you'll learn how to read and understand history's greatest Catholic works from today's greatest Catholic scholars. In every series of The Commentaries, your expert host will be your personal guide to not just read the book, but to live the book, shining the light of its eternal truths into our modern darkness. Visit TANCommentaries.com to get your copy of the book and to subscribe for access to all the great reading plans, new episodes, bonus content, and exclusive deals for listeners of the commentaries. Brothers and sisters, welcome to the commentary series on the Confessions of St. Augustine. I'm Dr. Paul Thigpen, an author and retired professor of historical theology. This is the sixth episode of our series, and we're using the Tan edition of the Confessions. Today we explore Book 4, Chapters 1 through 16, St. Augustine's thoughts and recollections about the wanderings of his mind and heart in his early adult years. Let's begin with words from his prayer. Lord, let my soul praise you, that it may love you, and let it confess to you your mercies, that it may praise you. Amen. To understand much of what Augustine says about his spiritual wanderings, we need some historical context about the religious sect that he joined as a young man, known as the Manichees or Manichaeans. It was a radical offshoot of the ancient Gnostic movement, a wide-ranging assortment of various beliefs and practices with roots in Eastern religions and mythologies, who professed that knowledge, usually secret knowledge, was the path to salvation. The Gnostics widely penetrated the Christian community and even the Jewish community, professing to offer the true version of the faith. But they actually were using Christian terminology and scripture as a facade for beliefs and practices that were alien to the apostolic tradition. They've had many spiritual descendants down through the centuries, including the Cathari and the Albigensians of medieval Europe and the Christian scientists and New Age believers of more recent times. The founder of this particular Gnostic tradition named Mani was a third century native of Babylonia who had claimed to have revelations from God that convinced him that the revelations of previous religious founders, such as Jesus and Buddha, were incomplete. Mani believed that his mission was to bring to the world the fullness of revelation by founding what he declared to be the religion of light. His followers claimed that he was the one in whom the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, resides. Zealous Manichaean missionaries spread the new religion quickly, far beyond the Persian Empire, from Western Europe to North Africa to China and even Siberia. The Manichaeans consistently referred to themselves as Christians and thought themselves to possess the only authentic version of Christianity. But even a brief look at some of their beliefs and practices demonstrates otherwise. The essential claim of the Manichaeans was this, good and evil are two co-eternal principles at war, God and Satan, the light and the darkness. Through a complex series of conflicts, the two became mixed with particles of light or spirit being imprisoned in human bodies and other living matter, which are part of the darkness. All the matter of this world then is evil, including the human body. The goal of religion then is to release the particles of light to return to their origin, the light that is God. For the Manichees, Jesus, or Christ, had a role in this salvation, but he saved through Gnostic enlightenment, 
not through an incarnation as a man, because a true messenger of the light would never take on a human body. Instead, he came in human history as various enlightened entities. Meanwhile, the Jesus of the Christian apostolic tradition was considered false and the devil in disguise. As for Manichae day-to-day practice, if you would be one of the perfect Manichaeans, one of the elect, you must not eat meat, drink wine, marry, have sexual intercourse, harvest any food or own possessions. All those activities would involve too intimate a dealing with the evil matter. So those who didn't aspire to such perfection, called the auditors or hearers, had to harvest the food to provide the perfect ones with sustenance. When the perfect ones ate the food, the particles of life within the stuff that had been alive was released back to the light through their breath, or their belches, as the case may be. And those who served them had the hope of one day being reincarnated as the elect. We can see then why a young and scarcely catechized Augustine would embrace Manichaean thought. It professed the name of Christ, which still held an attraction for him, but it seemed to be more intellectually sophisticated than Catholic teaching and allowed him either to reinterpret or dispense with those portions of the scriptures that he found problematic. The Manichees, after all, rejected the Old Testament and much of the New, deeming those books as naive, immoral, and deceptive. If matter was inherently evil, there could be no good creator of a material world that he declared to be good. There could be no incarnation of God in the flesh. There could be no resurrection of the human body. In light of these Manichae teachings, we can better understand many of the comments that Augustine made about his experience with them. We can also understand better St. Monica's anguish over his leaving the Catholic faith to adopt these strange ideas and practices. Many Catholic parents today know that anguish all too well. Book 4 opens with a confession of the hypocrisy into which Augustine had fallen. Publicly, through his addiction to the theater and his work as a teacher of rhetoric, he took part in the promotion of sexual promiscuity and other indulgences of the flesh. But privately, as a manichae, privately because the religion was outlawed at the time, he was teaching that the body was evil and those deeds were immoral. For nine years, he recalls, from my 19th to my 28th year, we were seduced and we seduced others, deceiving and deceived in a variety of lusts. In the open, we did it by teachings that are called liberal, that is, liberal arts. In private, we did it under the false name of religion, here proud, there superstitious, everywhere vain. Here we sought the hollow sound of popular acclaim going so far as to mount the stage for applause, contending with one another in song, striving for crowns of grass, putting forward nothings for people to gaze upon, and indulging our unbridled desires. There, meanwhile, we longed to purge from ourselves these smutty things, so we brought food to those who were called saintly and elect, so that they would hammer out gods and angels for us from their smithies and the paunch, and those would set us free. Next, Augustine turns his attention to other failings of that time. First, those were the years when I taught the art of rhetoric. Vanquished by a desire for gain, I put up for sale the art of gabbling for victory in the courts. But there were yet other failings to be confessed. In those years, I kept a woman, not one I knew, 
in what is called the lawful bond of marriage, but one I had scared up in my wandering lust, as I had no prudence at all. Still, she was the only one, and I kept faithful to our bed. Augusta never tells us the name of the mistress to whom he remained faithful for about 15 years, but we do know that they had a son together, a Deodatus, which means given by God. More about that later. The saint next recalls his disdain for the pagan practice of divination, the attempt to gain hidden knowledge, or foretell or even influence the future through the interpretation of omens. Even as a manichae, he had good sense enough to avoid that trap. Nevertheless, he did have the habit of consulting astrologers, called in his time mathematicians, because the study of math was closely tied to the study of the stars. Years later, he now knows that with good reason does true and Christian piety reject and condemn them. Why would he come to reject astrology? Because it assumes that much of what happens to us is not the consequence of our character or behavior, but is determined by the stars. He reports that the astrologers say, the cause of your sin comes from the skies and is inevitable, and Venus did this, or Saturn, or Mars, so that the sinner, flesh and blood and the towering stench that he is, might not bear the blame, but rather the creator and ruler of heaven and the stars above. At that time, Augustine became good friends with an older and wiser man who tried to talk him out of such superstition. The friend had in his youth studied astrology as well, but found it to be utterly false as a science. When the younger man asked him how it could be that the astrologers sometimes made accurate predictions, he said it happens by pure chance. Yet it would be some time before the saint would be convinced that the celestial bodies had no power to influence, much less determine our lives. Much of the rest of Book 4 is an extended meditation on friendship. Augustine's thoughts on this topic are prompted when he recalls a young man his age who became his dear friend during this time. Sad to say, Augustine influenced the young man away from the Christian faith and into the beliefs of the Manichees. They became so close that the friend, says Augustine, was sweeter to me than all the sweet things in that life of mine. The saint then recalls a miracle of God's grace, though a bittersweet one. The friend became deathly ill with a fever, lying in a coma, and someone baptized him. Augustine shrugged off the event. No doubt the baptism would make no difference, and when the young man recovered, they could laugh about it together and continue on the Manichaean path. But that was not at all the case. When the friend came out of the coma and learned that he had been baptized, everything changed. Augustine tried to make a joke of the baptism, but the friend rebuked him sharply and told him to stop talking that way or else they could no longer be friends. A few days later, the fever returned and the friend died. He was snatched away from my madness, recalls the saint, that with you, Lord, he might be saved from my consolation. What follows is a hauntingly eloquent and deeply moving portrayal of grief over losing a friend. It's a long passage, but worth reading again and again. Listen to it, and if you have ever suffered the loss of someone close, you may find yourself weeping. The saint says, My heart was made dark with grief, and whatever I looked upon was death. My homeland was to me a prison, 
a father's house, a place of unhappiness to stun the heart. And whatever I used to share with my friend, without him became a cruel torment. My eyes sought him everywhere, and he was not to be found. And I hated all things because he was not there. And they could not say to me, look, here he comes, as when he was alive and had been away for a time. Weeping was the only thing I found sweet, and it took the place of my friend and my soul's delights. For I marvel that other mortal beings should live, since he whom I delighted in as if he would never die was now dead. And I marveled more that I should still live when he was dead, as I was his second self. Well did someone once say of his friend that he was half of his soul, for I had felt that my soul and his were really one soul and two bodies, and life was a horror to me because I did not want to live as a mere half. So maybe I was afraid to die, lest he whom I had loved so much should die utterly. Oh madness, not knowing how to love human beings in a human way. Oh foolish man, unable to suffer with moderation the trials of human life. And such was I. So I stormed and sighed and wept and tossed about in confusion, and there was no rest, no counsel. For I carried about my crushed and bleeding soul, which could not bear that I should carry it, and I found no place where I could lay it down. Not in pleasant groves, not in games and songs, not in sweet-smelling gardens, not in fancy banquets, not in the pleasures of the bedroom and the bed, not even in books and poetry. Nowhere could it rest content. All things were a horror. The very light and whatever was not what he was, was worthless and wearisome to me, all except moaning and tears. And those alone did I find a little peace. But as soon as I left off my weeping, a great burden of misery weighed me down. Who else could weave together these extraordinarily passionate words but Augustine? Has any man ever felt more deeply, more intensely, the exquisite bond of intimate friendship? Still the saint insists in one important sense even that intense friendship was not genuine. For no friendship is genuine, Lord, unless you have been the glue, bonding together those who cleave to one another by that charity that you pour forth into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. One last glimpse of Augustine's experience of friendship comes to us when he tells how his heart came to heal. Those who have ever been part of a close circle of friends will recognize the scene. Those who have not may well long for such a circle when they hear his words. The times never take their rest, nor do they roll idly through our senses. They work remarkable effects in the mind. See, the times came and passed from one day to the next, and they sowed in me other hopes and other memories, and little by little they patched me up with my old pastimes and my sorrow gave way to them. No doubt the solace of other friends did much to restore me and refresh me, among whom I loved what I would go on to love again. There were other things that occupied my mind when I was with my friends, to talk together and laugh, and happily do good turns for one another, to read eloquent books together, 
sometimes to joke around, sometimes to be in earnest, now and then to disagree without any hate, as if somebody might disagree with himself, and to enjoy that quite rare dissension as the spice to our more frequent agreement. Now to teach the others, and now to learn from them, to miss those who were away, and to greet them with gladness when they came back. These signs and others like them, coming from the hearts of those who love and who return the love of their friends, signs from the countenance, the tongue, the eyes, and a thousand free and easy gestures, were the tender to set our minds afire and to forge from the many but one. Lord our God, grant us the grace of such friendships and teach us to love our friends in you. Amen and God bless. This has been an episode of The Commentaries, a podcast brought to you by TAN. To follow the show, study more of the greatest Catholic classics, and to support the commentaries and other great free content from TAN, visit tancommentaries.com to subscribe and use coupon code COM25 to get 25% off your next order, including the confessions and countless more spiritual works to deepen your interior life and guide you to heaven.